HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Itoen, the leading green tea company and makers of Oi Ocha, Japan's number one selling green tea. For more information, visit itoen.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm Damon Bolte. All right. My name is Southern Teague. Good to be here. All right, cool. And we are in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn, and it's a beautiful sunny day. And the last time we had this guest on the show was, it, it, I just want to preface this by saying, like, it's it's been five and a half years doing the show, and sometimes that seems like a very short period of time, but man, it's it's it's. It's a pretty good run. I mean, yeah. it's, it's it's a long time. Yeah. So, like, the last time uh, our guest today was here was two and a half years ago. And um, outside of being the founder of Kings County Distillery, uh, last time he was on the show, uh, we were talking about his book, uh, The Kings County Distillery Guide to Urban Moonshining, uh, which is an awesome book, too. Uh, but as we progress through the years we keep going bigger and better and more awesome and so we're going to talk about the new book today from Collins Pullman from Kings County Distillery welcome to the show thanks Damon thanks for having me absolutely it's great to have you back man um, I, I just have to say this book is incredibly the only way I can describe it is just badass uh, it's called Dead Distillers <laughs> um, it's from Abrams Image uh, Publishing and I, it's. I've had a hard time with this book based on the fact that, like, I, 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 I can't believe that someone wrote such an in-depth book, like, <laughs> the, 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 on such like, a narrow topic. <laughs> I, uh, no, I mean, like, it's like it's it's such an encyclopedic book and such a. a deep reference to all these dead distillers from the past it's like it reminded me like first time i cracked it i was like holy shit this looks like like a dave wondrich book you know it's like very encyclopedic and very in-depth and uh it's but it's also playful in a way on the subject of death (laughs) and distilling it's actually kind of it's like kind of playful you know it's got like pictures of like washington's teeth you know (laughs) stuff like that um 
but yeah, it's a great book, man. Uh, I, I know, like last time you're here, we were talking about your your guide to moonshining, like to urban distillation. Like that's how you got started with uh, mm-hmm. with Kings County, and now like look where you are with with just, with outside that book. I mean, even the the distillery alone is it's very iconic for New York City distillation, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, it's just it's just really cool. I like I I. I, I I don't even know how to get into this. I'm well, let me tell, let me, tell, tell me, you, tell me how it started. I think it's man. fun to point out that that the distillery is, uh, as it says right here on the back of the book, the oldest and largest whiskey distillery in New York, right? So, and you're only five and a half years old. So, there's a history there, right? There were distilleries, right. they went right. away. You brought it back. Now you're writing books. Let's right. go. Right. I should clarify, New York City. So, New York City. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, the kind of the way that this book came about is that. Um, Greenwood Cemetery uh, is is a cemetery uh, that's uh, you know sort of in Sunset Park, and uh, they are trying to. I mean, they've been around for 150, much more than that, 160 years, something like that. People are dying to get in. 170 years, <laughs> yeah, right. And so they've been trying to figure out ways to kind of reach out to the community because they're pretty much all full. I mean, there's not, there's not they're not entirely full, but they're. So they were, um, and they have a lot of expenses taking care of all these graves that have been there for for years and years. So they've been doing tours and events and kind of opening up the cemetery in a way to connect to the community. And so one of their ideas was, why don't we do a distillery tour and then we'll go into the cemetery, we'll, we'll start at the cemetery, visit some former distillers, and then we'll go over to one of the modern day distilleries and, and have a drink. So there, there were plenty of distillers buried in that. Well, that's what I said. I said, "Was well, going to be a short tour. We're going to go to like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> two graves and then head to the distillery." But as it turns out, um, there are uh, several um, fairly significant distillers for American history, um, and and people who have basically been forgotten. And in the course of doing research for the book. I mean, there's some obvious ones like um, Hezekiah Pierpont, for instance. So Pierpont Street in Brooklyn Heights. Um, he was a gin distiller. Um, he kind of took over a distillery that was at the base of Atlantic Avenue, uh, kind of where that meets the harbor. Philip Livingston was the original distiller there. He was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. So he was making rum. Then the Revolutionary War happened. And then Hezekiah Pierpont took over, made a ton of money. And then his son is actually the founder of Greenwood Cemetery. So that's kind of the initial connection that I was sort of like taken aback. I was like, oh, this beautiful place that remains to this day is built off of gin money from 200 years ago. That is fascinating. Sure. And, and what are the other stories that are buried here? Was Livingston making dark rum? Because it sounds pretty dark, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it was an era where there were... Uh, mostly slaves working the distillery. It was part of this triangular trade of molasses, rum, slaves. I mean, it was, it was not the brightest moment in American history, but it was a formative moment in American history. Sure. And so from that time forward, there were a lot of uh, Irish and Scottish immigrants kind of pouring into New York City. One of them, Charles Wilson, had the largest distillery in the country at the time. Um, nobody remembers his name, but his son, uh, or, or so one of his cousins, or, or sort of a, 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 an apprentice to him, then went down to Indiana and was part of what became the Fleischmann Distillery. Oh wow! Um, which was fairly significant. In um, eventually moved to Cincinnati. So a lot of the threads of American distilling can actually be woven back to New York City, and a lot of those distillers are actually buried in Greenwood. Which all of this was something I didn't have any idea about 
But by being a distillery that is open in a place where people don't really associate with distilling, I mean, Kentucky and Tennessee, you assume that there are many distillers buried there. But Pittsburgh, as we were talking about earlier with the Overholt Distillery, um, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Cincinnati, St. Louis, um, New York City, Boston, Philadelphia, these are all places that had many distilleries and many distillers working those distilleries. Well, New York City has a a rich history of uh, brewing, which then bred to what they called the, the, the bourbon barons, right? There were bourbon distillers that were taking the beer that was being brewed back then? I, I don't know. Oh. Maybe I, just, <laughs> maybe I made that up. It sounded cool, though. <laughs> I, I, I said bourbon barons because I'm looking at a bottle of bourbon. They were called the beer barons. They, beer barons, they yeah. had distilleries. They were making beer. They were taking the beer. And, uh, sorry, the head brewers are making beer. They were taking the beer and distilling it for their own use and for their friends. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. No, I didn't know that. But I mean, so They were selling the beer, but they were making... They're making distillates for themselves. Right. Well, I have often found that brewers often, once they master the brewing art, tend to become slightly curious <laughs> how, to, how to take it to the next level. Is that... Uh, so, okay. Like, you, so you got to go on one of these tours through the cemetery. Right. And that sparked your interest in it. Yep. So, how how deep does this reach? I mean, like, I, I've... What's one of the coolest things to me about uh, this book is, like, just only just a few pages through... Um, I believe it's on like page like twenty or something like that. Mm-hmm. There's this huge like flow chart of all these distilleries, um, and I mean it's got. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to back up a little bit here. So I used to work at this shop called Linnell's down in Red mm-hmm. Hook, sure, yeah. and uh, and there are so many of these names that I know, like J.W. Dant and J.T.S. Brown and W. I.W. Harper. Uh huh. Like, uh huh. What is happening? Because like when we when we were working at that shop, like we had all these whiskeys, and it was my favorite shelf. It was the bottom shelf. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it, like the coolest thing about it to me, like coming from a back like a background of graphic design, was that all the labels were brown, gold, red, and black. Mm-hmm. That was like it was like there was no other ink colors back then, and that's <laughs> kind of true to a certain extent, except for the gold. But. uh uh you know, as far as like actually using natural dyes and you know to make to make your inks, but uh, what has happened? I mean, like with these distilleries and like well, it's specifically these labels, like over the past like ten years, like uh, right. are, are they just not available anymore? Are they not making them anymore? Is it like was there lost interest in these certain whiskeys? Well, that was a big part of it. So, so really, what the the story of American whiskey is is often the story of American farmers. It was a lot of independent. Um, it was a way for people who lived in Kentucky and Ohio and Indiana to get their crop to market. So a lot of early presidents, George Washington, Andrew Jackson, William Henry Harrison, you know, they were farmers, but they were also distillers. And then with the advent of railroads, the the distilleries start to move from the farms into kind of urban areas that are near bodies of water and near, near railroads. So then you start to have sort of the first consolidation of the industry. Um, then prohibition happens, at which point all the distilleries are shut down. <laughs> and so that killed distilling, certainly in Cincinnati, St. Louis, Pittsburgh, New York, Philadelphia, for the most part. And when it came time to reopen the distilleries, it was really those rural distilleries that were still around. So the reason that we drink Jack Daniels has a lot to do with the fact that that was a very rural distillery and that was just an easier distillery to reopen after 13 years of dormancy. 
So then there was a little bit of the business got started again. A few of those brands had gotten reshuffled quite a bit during Prohibition. But eventually it was there were four big companies that controlled pretty much all the spirits market in the United States, and that was National, Seagram's, Hiram Walker, uh, uh, and uh, United Distillers, which, which is now become Diageo. But um, then in the 70s, when people got less interested in American whiskey, um, all of those brands got sold off, bought by other types of companies. There was this sort of corporate raider era of the 80s. And there was a reshuffling that happened again into kind of the landscape that we see today, where a lot of these distilleries are owned by European companies, whether it's, you know, Campari or Pernod Ricard or Diageo, Suntory. Um, so it's very interesting to trace that. It's a history of not just distilling or American culture, but it's really a history of business, too, in the way that business has sure. taken right. advantage of <laughs> small producers and <laughs> turned that into culture and commodity pretty fascinating i mean like one of the most classic stories is the uh as far as like a like kind of like a rebirth of a brand it's like the uh, samuels mm-hmm. yeah, uh, yeah, brand yeah. and turning into maker's mark and like burning the recipe and then like waiting you know like eight years before maker mark, maker's mark comes back out you know or comes yeah, out yeah, originally yeah. um it seems like there's like feels like there's a lot of these kind of like just like kind of like not necessarily, I wouldn't say corporate, but like they are definitely like business moves. But it seems like there are lulls in like like Irish whiskey, for instance. Like there was definitely mm-hmm. like uh, a loss in interest uh, for all the smaller brands for a while, and then they all started got started like dying off or got like kind of absorbed by bigger absorbed brands. By a bigger yeah. brand, yeah. Um, and it seems like. <clears throat> A lot of these, like, they're just such a weird, like, it is a well, very American history where it's just, like, yeah. very fickle and, like, very scattered and, like, in and out. there's lots of, lots of in and outs, you know? Right. Well, another piece of it that's worth sort of articulating is that it's also very generational. So, you know, Pappy Van Winkle, for instance, was a person who was just, uh, you know, he was in his 20s, I think, around, or maybe 30s, around the time that Prohibition uh, went into effect, but he sort of bet, bet on it failing, and he kind of emerged as one of the few independent distillers after Stitzel Weller was his distillery, and that was one of the few distilleries that remained independent in that era of those big four. Um, but like like in a lot of these instances, when somebody's successful, <laughs> when they get to be like 65, 70 years old, they want to cash out. Yeah. So a lot of them sold the businesses. Jack Daniels is an instance of, of kind of just when they reach later in life. Jack Daniels said, I, I never want my name to be on a bottle of whiskey ever again. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he sort of got saved and found Jesus and was like, it, it was less about that, I have to say, based on kind of reading sort of what was going on. He just, it wasn't going to be his whiskey anymore, and he didn't want his name on it. But by that point, he had already given it to his uh, nephew, Lem Motlow, who was very ambitious and, and ultimately built Jack Daniels into a much bigger brand than even Jack Daniels had done. Um, but you see this time and again where the where the, the patriarch of the family builds the brand, and then the sort of sons kind of say, oh, I'm sick of whiskey. I'm, I'm never going to be successful. And they sell it off. Mm. And then it's only later that you see people coming back and and being like, I we, we, you know, wish we did, hadn't done that. Yeah, and, exactly. and so even, you know, there's a, a brand Yellowstone and uh, Steve Beam is uh, his great grandfather or 
I think it was, I think it was Minor Case Beam is one of the Beam family and had been involved in that brand Yellowstone and and now that brand got passed around. It was one of those bottom shelf brands that sort of hung around the bottom shelf and now they're forging a partnership with him again to reinvigorate that brand. And those are kind of those nice stories. And same thing with Maker's Mark where the children and Willet is another example where the children sort of feel like, oh, maybe that was a bad idea of <laughs> what we did a generation ago. Let's reclaim Let's that. Let's try and fix that mistake. And so those cycles happen again and again through the story of whiskey. Dude, I can't wait for Yellowstone to come back because, I mean, it's a national park. I think there should be a like a whiskey for every national park. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I would Yosemite. That, for every park. Yeah, Yosemite Mammoth, Mammoth Cave was a whiskey brand. Yeah, back yeah. in the day. Uh, I, I think it's interesting to think about uh, the American perception of the whiskey distiller. I think is, you know, rural backwoods, mountainous folks who are maybe in you know in our in our sort of romanticized mm-hmm. look at it. We think mm-hmm. they're kind of maybe they're 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 bumpkins. They're not so intelligent, right? right? So. Right. Then we see that these guys are really smart. They're making a great product. They become businessmen because of it. And then these things start to happen. They, the ones who become giants be, become titans because they then start absorbing the other giants around them. Sure, sure. Yeah, so I think that's kind of interesting thing. One of the interesting characters in the book is Henry Clay Frick, who is, uh, as New Yorkers, we know him as the person behind the Frick collection. But as a young man, his, uh, again, I'm not exactly sure. I remember exactly what the family connection is, but he was some sort of a nephew of... Uh, Abraham Overholt, who was yeah. the who ran the Overholt Distillery, and he um, was kind of a sickly young boy, so he was always around the house and became very bookish. But eventually seized control of that distillery when he had the opportunity, and then funneled all of that money into steel and coke and coal production, and then built a much broader. I mean, he became an industrialist of the late, you know, nineteenth century and. Uh, became one of the wealthiest people in the world. But it really took that distillery when he was a young man and figuring out how to run that very simple business that ultimately built him into, right. you know, one of the titans of American business history. Yeah. All right. So I got to tell you that uh, one of the first, actually it was the first whiskey I ever had, I found uh, like an airplane bottle uh-huh. uh, in my grandma's closet when I was probably... 10 years old <laughs> me and my, my twin brother we split it uh-huh. uh, and uh, it was a, it was a tiny bottle of Old Crow <laughs> and uh, so you know what like it's been doing this for a while but like it seems like you're, you might be the person to tell me about some of the history of I can I can old Crow, I can man. tell you everything about Crow or everything that everything probably that anyone knows about Old Crow which probably not that much um, but he was a Scottish immigrant. He had a, a medical degree and stopped practicing medicine for reasons that are slightly unclear. But uh, eventually settled in the frontier of Kentucky in the 1830s uh, and worked at the distillery that is today Woodford Reserve. Uh, and he and it was the Elijah uh, Pepper Distillery, I believe. And uh, uh, so so he worked there for for a long time and kind of introduced scientific practices. So he would test the specific gravity of the mash so that would give him a sense for how successful the fermentation was he moved the cows and pigs away from the distillery so that they would not they would feed the slop to the cows and pigs so a lot of distilleries in those days had um uh you know farms associated with them to deal with all the spent grain that was left over so he said we got to move those guys off further afield because they're contaminating the the spirit 
Um, so kind of instituted a lot of what we would call today scientific improvements in in distillation. He and, just didn't want to smell like cow and pig farts. <laughs> yeah, right, also just right. safe well, practice. Yeah, kind of <laughs> kind of basics that we would maybe now say. But um, uh, anyway, he's he's kind of interesting. He died young. He died on the job. He was working the distillery. Um, and E.H. Uh, e. Taylor, who would become a figure, uh, is, is you know, conti- continues to be a brand that people can buy from the Buffalo Trace Distillery. E.H. Taylor was a kind of a blue blood sort of banker who loved whiskey and, and kind of saw whiskey production as Kentucky's sort of virtue to the gift to the world. And so he acquired the Old Crow brand name and separated it from the Elijah Pepper Distillery. And so uh, uh, then built a new distillery for the Crow brand, and then it shifted hands and became part of National Distillers, part of Jim Beam, um, and where that's where the brand has stayed. But once upon a time, it was very well known as a very top-shelf whiskey, and then certainly for the last probably 60 years, it's been a little bit more of a bottom-shelf whiskey. But that's where dirt. I found it. I found <laughs> yes, it in the bottom yes. shelf of my grandma's closet. <laughs> the dirty bird. The but dirty a, bird. another thing that I'll say about Crow is he was uh, interested in the, the yield per bushel that was the he wanted to have a low yield per bushel because he felt that made better whiskey and so huh. at, a, at a certain point the government insisted on a higher yield per bushel so that you could get your tax money they wanted to have a consistent sure. rate of tax from from what went into the process and he sort of fought that and and uh e.h taylor helped him with that that's awesome hmm. <laughs> um yeah and like nowadays i mean like obviously like buffalo trace has e.h taylor and like it's see it everywhere that's cool like i didn't i didn't really realize all that lineage of that i just remember drinking in the back of uh a car like on a on a school trip yeah uh sorry mom yeah sorry you well, had to find out this way <laughs> i'm sure this is not how she's finding out <laughs> right 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 um that's awesome um so what would hey uh what was your first experience with uh american whiskey with american Southern? whiskey um, well, you, you brought up his name, uh, Abe Overholt, uh, which still remains my favorite uh, whiskey. Um, uh, we were talking earlier before the show about a recent acquisition I made of a, a full case, 12 quart-sized bottles of 1909 Old Overholt whiskey, pre-prohibition juice. Um, and when I was a young man, first of all, let's, uh, you had that whiskey when you were 10 years old. I never had my first drink until I was 22. Whoa! I know, right? Man, I got. That's why I have. How? How? uh, My hair is this long, and my beard is the same way. I was straight edge, (laughs) compliant. Uh, Yeah. Um, So, uh, but I was young and kind of. Well, no, not kind. I was poor. I was, you know, a a struggling student in culinary school in California, and um, my buddy and I would go to the local bar, which was called uh, uh, the John Bull Cocktail. That was the name of the, the bar. The full name of the bar: John Bull Cocktail. (laughs) <laughs> and we would sit there and drink um, Tecatis, because mm-hmm. at the time the can literally said on the can, America's number one imported canned beer. <laughs> <laughs> and they had uh, you know some kind of special, I don't remember what it was back then, but literally probably $3, $4, that you could get a can of Tecati and a shot of old Overholt. And we would refer to it as anything but overhaul. We'd say, let's go get an old overthrow, an old overbite, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. an old overhang. <laughs> uh, so my first experience with whiskey was drinking old overhaul as a poor culinary student in San Francisco, yeah. California. <laughs> nice. <laughs> with American yeah. whiskey. Yeah. That's funny. Mexican beer, 
America was. It, you know, it had no, it, it was so, all about economics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it had nothing to yeah. do with geographic. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Colin? What was your first? Uh, I, I don't remember my first. Uh, well, probably my first bourbon would would have been Jim Beam White Label, but yeah. but the first time I remember an experience with bourbon was Elijah Craig, because I had a, a reverend. Yes, indeed, <laughs> and uh, I did not have. Uh, it was a dry county where I grew up in Kentucky, and so to get uh, any alcohol, you really had to make a trip, either to a bootlegger or across the border to Virginia. But if you really went to to Richmond, Kentucky, which is almost all the way to Lexington, which was good two-hour drive yeah you could get you'd have more selection you could get the good stuff and so i had a, a buddy who would bring back elijah craig and he just said that was the best whiskey the money could buy and uh it, prom- it, it was not far off in those days and uh even and, these days i, I it's yeah yeah currently my days. only bourbon at a more sure, yeah yeah right so uh so you know that that was to sample that and he would just drink the whole bottle in one sitting just because just to prove <laughs> That his palate was so refined that he could just, you know, take care of the whole thing. So uh, we would enjoy it, then we would abuse it, and and, and move on. But so Elijah Craig was was one of those figures, uh, in, in not really associated with the Today brand. I mean, no particular connection, um, but was a minister and and traveled from Virginia to Kentucky, where he may have been. Uh, uh, the first person to distill bourbon it seems very unlikely but he was certainly a distiller um and all his clergy brethren thought of him as somebody who had fallen from grace he became uh not because he was interested in whiskey but because he was interested in business he was interested in making money Uh and people felt like that was he turned his back on god for that reason unethical yeah yeah well Well, that's that those are some stories about our prior experiences with whiskey it looks like we're about to have a current experience with whiskey yeah oh absolutely what's this on the table so this is king's county uh this is our flagship bourbon uh which we make over from the navy yard i gotta stay by the mic here so i'll just <laughs> pour myself so while you're doing that can i ask you uh how long it took to do all the research for this book um so i spent about a year um traveling to Kentucky, uh, to Ohio, Indiana, and even places like Los Angeles has distillers buried there. Um, DC has its share kind of, you know, a lot, a lot of people close yeah. to home, believe it or not. Um, but I would just go to cemeteries and, uh, there's a website, find a grave and you can just kind of search through people who are buried in a particular cemetery. And That's you creepy. Can, you can search by <laughs> find a grave. Yeah. That's creepy. It's a find a grave.com. Find a grave.com. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And it's kind of like better than Wikipedia because it just kind of ties people to biographies that it's just kind of, it's really? got some robot that crawls the internet or, or some people obviously put in biographies for their loved ones. So you can oh. kind of just search by the word distiller in a given cemetery and the strangest people will pop up, and it's not very often. It's not the names that we associate with distilling. It's just kind of unusual people. I found uh, uh, Thomas Gaff that way, who who had a big, who was the acolyte of Charles Wilson, who was the big Brooklyn distiller. Um, I found a distiller in Los Angeles that way, who um, committed suicide in this very uh, gruesome way. He kind of told his family he wrote a suicide note which got delivered before he had actually passed wow so the usps so, used to work back then. yeah right i guess no right. that would have been the pony yeah. express right i i don't know and the, and, the, and the wife was too sort of appalled to go back and see what was going on so the son was called in to come investigate and by the time he got there 
they were able to sort of share their parting words, but then, but then he, uh, then he died. So it was a, a brandy distillery, brandy being uh, a way to take the wine production of California and kind of regularize it and keep it from the boom and bust cycles that were happening in the, in the late 1800s there in the, or early 1900s in in California. Wow, man. You know, what's, uh, it's crazy, <laughs> <laughs> but it's fascinating. I mean, you've you've Damon, you've had the book already for a little bit of time. It only released two weeks ago, right? Yeah. yeah. I'm literally just getting my hands on a copy right oh, cool. now and thumbing through it as we're talking, and I'm really excited to sit down and read it. Um, I'm also really excited to taste this whiskey. So let's yeah, talk, let's, let's do talk it. about that a little bit. What, so, what do we have in the bottle here? So uh, so this is uh, this is our bourbon. So Kings County is a whiskey distillery. We're uh, based in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Uh, have been around for six years. And uh, we were just named, I should just say, we were named this year Distillery of the Year by the American Distilling Institute, Congratulations. which yeah. they is an award they have given out only six times in their wow. uh, history. So uh, uh, that, that was a big honor, I think, for all of us. And uh, recognizes, I mean, we try to be traditionalists uh, in the sense that uh, I have a lot of respect for whiskey culture. But to do it in a way that's uh, hoping to add a little creativity into the world of whiskey. So um, we want to make, you know, great American whiskeys, but to do it in a way that um, respects the tradition of whiskey. Uh, I don't think you would see a quinoa whiskey from Kings County, although <laughs> I'm not I'm not totally opposed to that actually. But um, but working more within the sort of uh, culture of whiskey. So so doing a bourbon. We have a, a single malt whiskey that's going to come out eventually, um, and so this is uh, our flagship. So this is seventy percent uh, corn, thirty percent malt. So it's a high malt bourbon. There's actually no wheat or rye in the recipe, which distinguishes it a little bit from a Kentucky bourbon. That's it. Oh, just seventy thirty. Cheers, y'all. Yep. Cheers. All right. Boom, boom. Um, that's why you get to uh, be the best distillery of the year. <laughs> um, yeah. Hey. How, how long is this uh, in the barrel? So this is aged for about two years. Uh, and we use smaller barrels, which gives us a little more flavor in a shorter amount of time. Um, and just, I should say, just this weekend, we're, we're bottling our first four-year-old whiskey. Nice. So obviously we have no whiskey older than really five years is our oldest barrel. Um, and we'll save a little bit of the whiskey for the long term. But soon we'll have a regular four-year-old which we're gonna it's actually gonna be issued as a bottled in bond which is kind of a forgotten tradition in american distilling but it's four years old hundred proof 50 percent alcohol and distilled by one distiller in one season at one distillery so it's you can't have a sourced bottled in bond whiskey it has to come from the distillery that is written on the bottle speaking of that alone uh, correct me if i'm wrong but you guys started in a second location that you had before which is really Uh tiny i visited that spot when chris elford was distilling with you back (laughs) then 24 hour distilling you guys were just looking over these stills that were pushing out gallon at a time they're tiny tiny. yeah yeah yeah. so you guys really rode uh, you, you did the hard row by by you've always distilled your own juice for sure yeah 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 well that's the fun of it i mean it's i i'm if you if you're interested in branding, I get it. If you're interested in business, I get it. But if you're interested in distilling, as I am, I mean, that's it's. There's no fun in in buying somebody else's juice, and you actually don't learn anything. That's the other thing. Is I like to. Part of working on this book was not just because I like history, but it was to make us better distillers, to learn from those who had come before and their struggles, and 
the things that they felt was important. So E.H. Taylor, who mm-hmm. kind of championed the Bottled and Bond Act, he was dealing with some of the stuff that we deal with, where you've got distilleries that are just buying whiskey and putting their name on it, and that's you know that's a little deceptive to the consumer, and it's not nearly as fun for the for the for you know for us. Right. So uh, so so yeah, that's that's where a lot of that comes from. Delicious. I can taste the integrity. Absolutely, man. <laughs> thanks. Colin, thanks so much for coming on the show again. Um, always a pleasure to have you here. Can't wait to have you back. Um, I, one parting thing before we leave, I will say, please, uh, you know, the book's called Dead Distillers, A History of the Upstarts and Outlaws Who Made American Spirits. Please don't die anytime soon. Uh, I don't <laughs> yeah, want to read about that. to the book. Right, yeah, right, right. Yeah. The last chapter. <laughs> yeah, please don't. Uh, I, I, if I get to the back of this and find it, like, I, that would suck. Um, <laughs> yeah. But thanks so much. It's an awesome book. It's out on Abrams. Um, and also check out Colin's uh, previous book, uh, The Kings County Distillery Guide to Urban Moonshining, which is another great book. Man, thanks a lot, man. Uh, it's, it's always a pleasure to have you here, like I said before. And uh, if you get a chance, go check out Kings County Distillery. You can find them on the web. Check they out do the tours. Go yeah, tour we do tours. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah you, got, you got your facilities all worked out, and it's yeah. awesome. So, uh, yeah, thanks a lot, man. Thanks, David. Thanks, Father. Thank you. All right, that's it for the Speakeasy this week. Tune in to many, 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 many more programs just like this one on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Until then, cheers, guys. Cheers, cheers. buddy. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music. Save your soul The groove runs is grooving That rhythm and blues That's him It's gonna get you sun in the end Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio you can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.